Good morning. Let's read together today from Acts 11, verses 19 through 30. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, telling the message only to Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak Greek also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the ears of the church of Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw the evidence of the grace of God, he was glad, and he encouraged them to all remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, each according to his ability, decided to provide help for the brothers living in Judea. This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. This is the word of the Lord. All right, good morning, everyone. Glad to see you all here. Uh, We are now in week 17 of our sermon series, uh, The Christ Revolution, How the Gospel Changed the World and Can Do It Again. We've been going through the entire book of Acts, and we've really been picking up steam lately, tearing through the book of Acts, uh, covering large sections of it in recent weeks. And so by comparison, today's passage is relatively short. got a short passage today, and while it's a, a little passage in terms of its size and its length, This passage today is huge, it's massive in its implications in terms of what happens in the overall story of Acts and in church history as a whole and world history as a whole. There are huge monumental things that happen in our passage today. We see God move in some big ways in Antioch. And as God moves, we'll see a few things. They're kind of listed out on your your outline if you want to follow along uh, in in your program. As God moves, we see a new church formed, a new local body formed among Gentile people. We see that church grow in all kinds of ways. We see a growing church. And then we see the church as a whole, the overall worldwide body of followers of Jesus, take some massive shifts in our passage today. The church as a whole uh, has some profound shifts that begin to happen in what we're going to look at today. So let's dive right in passage that Heidi read for us this morning begins with kind of a flashback. In verse 19, uh, the author Luke starts with, Now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled. Uh, This goes back probably anywhere between 10 and 13 years from the present moment where we left off in our narrative last week. There's kind of a flashback. That persecution happened when Stephen was killed back uh, in the beginning of chapter 8 of the book of Acts. And then since then, we've seen all kinds of events that have happened in various places since that moment. But here, the author Luke takes us back to that moment and then begins to overview some other things that have taken place since those events. And what we see here is that those who were scattered by the persecution traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. 
spreading the word only among Jews. So Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, these were all major cities in the Roman Empire, and they would each have had uh, at least a small Jewish population in them. Antioch, uh, in fact, was actually the third largest city in the Roman Empire at this time and had kind of a Jewish quarter, a place where Jews had settled and gathered and built a life together, kind of like a Chinatown in Boston or Koreatown in L.A. Uh, and the people who were scattered by the persecution went from Jerusalem to these places and to Antioch, uh, at first just spreading the word among Jews only. There's no reason here given for that, why they spread the word among Jews only, but we can certainly speculate or gather some clues from elsewhere in Acts. I mean, certainly it would have just been more comfortable uh, there would have been less language barriers, less cultural barriers. It certainly would have been just simpler and easier to stick with people with whom they were more familiar and more comfortable, since these were all believers of a Jewish background. Uh, but we also picked up some clues in last week's passage that there were actually some pretty severe prejudices that existed as well uh, between Jews and Gentiles. The Jewish people just really didn't want anything to do with Gentiles, by and large. And so that could also be another reason why they stuck to just preaching the word to Jews at first. But at some point, we don't know when, um, it's not really told to us, but at some point along the way in verse 20, it says, some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. Now these Greeks are full-on Gentile people. So far, we've met some Hellenistic believers, and these would be uh, Jewish believers who spoke Greek as a language or people who had a, a Greek heritage but had converted to Judaism. But these people are full-on Gentiles. There's nothing Jewish about them, culturally, historically, linguistically, religiously, everything. They're non-Jewish people. If they were religious at all, they likely worshipped many gods, many pagan gods, and had a particular devotion to the sex goddess Daphne, who had a large temple set up in Antioch, uh, full with temple prostitutes, the whole nine yards, things that Jews would have found abhorrent and appalling. And yet it's here in Antioch we see the first real proactive sharing of the gospel from Jewish believers to Gentile people. Twice so far in Acts, uh, we've seen Gentiles interact with the gospel. We saw Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch in chapter 8, and last week we saw Peter visit Cornelius in his household in chapter 10. But in each of those cases, it was kind of a one-off event, and God had to go through some pretty extreme lengths just to get that conversation happening, just to get Philip and Peter talking to Gentile people. So in Philip's case, God clearly set up a divine appointment with the Ethiopian eunuch. He spoke audibly, Philip, go there, walk down that road, go up to that chariot with that, and talk to that person in it. And sure enough, Philip finds somebody in the chariot, the Ethiopian eunuch, who just so happens to be reading a passage of scripture that's all about Jesus and wants to know what it means. So Philip can put two and two together, and he realizes, oh, I should talk to this guy. And he helps him connect the dots and shares uh, the gospel with him. Then last week, we looked at the story of Peter and Cornelius. Again, God doing real big things to make this happen. First, uh, Cornelius sees a vision of an angel of the Lord. It says, send people to this house where Peter is and go get him. And meanwhile, Peter is up on the roof. He sees a vision, a dramatic vision from heaven. And God speaks to him in the vision. And it happens not once, but three times just to make sure he really gets it. And God says, now go downstairs and meet those people and go with them. These guys practically have no choice but to get together and begin talking about the gospel. 
But God has to almost literally move heaven and earth to get these conversations going, to get Philip and Peter in a position where they'll talk to Gentiles. And those Gentiles just so happen to be actively seeking God and wanting to know who he is. Now, wouldn't that just be cool? Uh, I would love it if God just directed me so clearly, just sent me visions every day, clear visions from heaven, angels, uh, clear audible voices, go here, do that. But it doesn't really work that way most of the time. And I, I would love it if God just kind of plucked me up off of my sofa and plopped me down across from some guy and said, hey, talk to that guy. And if that guy was like, oh, hey, I'm so glad you're here because I was actually just wondering, who's God? Could you tell me? And I would say, yeah, I'll tell you. And I would start to tell him about Jesus. And before I would even finish what I was saying, that guy would be filled with the Holy Spirit and ready to give his whole life to Jesus. Wouldn't that be great? Well, again, it doesn't really work that way. Uh, The way that the gospel is primarily meant to be shared with people and spread to people is the way we see it here these people who went to Antioch. They, they're people who just get grace. They just get it somehow. They get the grace of Jesus. They've received the grace of Jesus in their own lives. And they're compelled to share that grace with other people. They realize that everybody needs this grace in their lives. And they realize that because it's grace, it's available to every person, every kind of person, regardless of track record or religious background, Grace is available freely as a gift to everyone. And they're compelled by that, and so they go, and they just begin freely sharing this grace. And there's no indication that the people in Antioch were, were begging for that or asking them to come or already really seeking God. They just go because they realize grace is a gift for everybody and that you need to go and share it. That's how the gospel is primarily meant to be shared, by people who just get grace, are transformed by grace, and compelled by grace to go and share grace with all people. And they do that. This is a monumental event in world history that takes place here. The first concerted effort to take the gospel to Gentile people. And we don't even know who did it. It just says, some of them. Verse 20, just some of them. Men from Cyprus and Cyrene. We know who they weren't. They weren't the church leaders in Jerusalem. They weren't the apostles. The new church in Antioch is not part of any strategic plan on the part of the apostles, on the part of the paid professionals, the clergy. They're just ordinary believers. The fact that they don't get named just underscores their ordinariness. And that's the way it's supposed to be. Ordinary men and women, captured by grace, compelled by grace to share grace with other people. And this transformational work is happening in ordinary believers We saw last week in last week's passage that the the Jewish leaders, like Peter, had some serious prejudices to work through when it came to reaching Gentiles and sharing with them. And God began a transformational work in Peter and others. But here in our passage today, we see God's not waiting around for the leaders in Jerusalem to work through all of their issues. He's getting the gospel out to Gentile people through ordinary believers. And says the Lord's hand was with them. That's key. The Lord's hand was with them. God was in their ordinary sharing of the gospel. Every bit as much as he was in the dramatic stories of Philip and Peter with all the miracles and signs and wonders, God is in the ordinary day-to-day sharing of the gospel. He's at work there. He's in power there. He's showing his love, his grace there. He's sovereign in that. He's good. God is active in that sharing of the gospel. 
And this is a, a monumental event in world history. And this all happened somewhere in the span of those 10 to 13 years since Stephen's death and the persecution that took place. And then we fast forward back to where we left off last week in verse 22. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem. So whenever it happened, this is when they find out. And the timing couldn't be better because earlier in chapter 11, Peter had returned from his encounter with Cornelius and he'd gotten some pretty serious flack from his fellow Jewish believers that he would associate with the Gentiles and eat with them. But Peter explains what happened. He explains the vision that he saw. He explains how the Holy Spirit came upon Gentiles. And in verse 18, it says, When they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God, saying, So then, even to Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. And that's significant because if the leaders in Jerusalem had heard what happened at Antioch before this moment, they may have completely written it off. They may have dismissed it. They may have thought, that's a bad thing, that's not of God. They may have even gone to try and shut it down. And we'll find out later that some of those people, some Jewish believers in Jerusalem, really ever can't get on board with what God is doing among Gentiles. They end up actually opposing it. But for now, they're able to at least bless this new church in Antioch by sending Barnabas. And Barnabas is the perfect guy. Perfect guy to go. He goes and he sees what the grace of God had done. We don't know which people started this church. It just says the grace of God had done it. We see credit given where credit is due in this passage. A lot of times as Christian leaders, it's tempting to want to take credit for things that happened. Oh, I planted this church, or I grew this ministry, or I led these people to faith. But really, anything that happens of any value in the kingdom is because of the grace of God. So here, we just see credit given where credit's due. And Barnabas goes and he sees it. And again, Barnabas is the perfect person to go for a few reasons. We first met Barnabas back in chapter 4, verse 36. It says, Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. We learn a couple things about Barnabas here. One, he's from Cyprus, so he may have some natural connection to these men from Cyprus who went and shared the gospel. So there's some affinity there, perhaps. He's a good fit for this role. Also, we just learn what kind of guy Barnabas is. His name's not even Barnabas. It's Joseph, but the apostles call him Barnabas, son of encouragement. What a cool nickname. He just exudes encouragement. That's what people called him. Like, they just saw him. You know, It's like calling a redhead red. You just see him and you think, oh, red. Well, people would see Barnabas and just see encouragement. That became his nickname, what he went by, what people called him. Son of encouragement. And he goes fr from Jerusalem to Antioch to this new church, this new movement among Gentiles, and sure enough, he lives up to his name. Verse 23, he encouraged them. He encouraged them. He saw what God was doing, and he gave it his blessing. He validated it. He said, yeah, this is God. This is awesome. Keep it up. He encouraged them. And what else do we see about Barnabas in this passage? In verse 24, it says, he was a good man. And that just doesn't mean he kept the rules and he, he was kind of a nice guy, he picked up after himself. Uh, it's, a, it's a deeper meaning. It's a lot about his disposition. He was just, he was a good man. He was kind. He was full of encouragement. He just had a great disposition. He was warm. He had a big heart. He was the perfect person to go and give his blessing to this new Antioch church. It says he was full of the Holy Spirit, which we've learned earlier in our series in Acts, it means he was fully surrendered to God. 
fully given over to the work of Christ in his life. And he was full of faith, it says. That kind of means he, he really just believes God. He takes God at his word. He believes God in this situation. Perhaps he remembers that God had made promises to bring his saving grace to the Gentiles, to the nations. And so he's not hung up on all these cultural barriers, but he sees what's happening and he says, yeah, that's God. Takes God at his word. You know, there are others in Acts who had heard Jesus say, you'll be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. And yet they have a hard time believing it when they see it. But Barnabas sees it and he takes God at his word and he's quick to encourage what's happening. He's full of faith. And under his leadership, we see this church grow in all kinds of ways. This is a growing church in Antioch. We see it grow in numbers. This is really emphasized by the author Luke. Three times he refers to great numbers of people. Verse 21, a great number of people believed. Verse 24, a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Verse 26, they taught great numbers of people. Numerical growth is Clearly emphasized here. This is a growing church numerically. It's growing in size. It's growing in numbers. And it's also growing in its depth. It's growing in its maturity. And those two things go hand in hand. Exponential numerical growth and growth in depth and maturity. So often there's like a tug of war between those values in the church. Oh, should we invest in reaching new people or should we invest in the people we have here? Well, there's no such distinction in Acts. They're both happening. Great numbers of people are being added But they're not just being added. Great numbers of people are being taught. Their spiritual life is being invested in. They're growing. They're learning. They're growing in their faith. They're maturing in their faith. And this church starts to exhibit all the characteristics of a church of people that's being fully transformed by Jesus. They're full of grace. They're understanding grace. They're exhibiting the gifts of the Holy Spirit. They're exhibiting generosity. They're growing in their faith, even as they're growing in numbers. In a healthy church where God is moving, both of those things are happening. People are being added. The church is growing that way. The church is also growing uh, as people mature and grow in their faith and their understanding of Jesus. The church is also growing through the development of new leaders. That's another sign of a real growing church. New leaders are being raised up. So Barnabas, he doesn't take it upon himself to teach all these new people, teach all these new believers. He recognizes that He needs help. There's great numbers of people here who need to be taught. And he's not full of himself. He's not full of ego. He's not looking to take center stage for himself and just be the man who teaches them all. He's concerned primarily for their growth in Christ. And so he realizes he needs partners. He needs help. And where does he go for this help? Well, he doesn't go to Jerusalem where all the great leaders are. Perhaps he realizes they'd have too many hang-ups about Gentiles and they'd have a a really hard time just blessing and growing this new thing. There'd be too many issues and prejudices to work through. He doesn't go to Jerusalem. He goes to Tarsus and he finds Saul. Last uh, we heard from Saul, it was a number of years ago in this narrative, and he'd been kind of sent away from the church in Jerusalem. Sent away, he was causing a lot of damage. He, sent, he was sent away with his tail between his legs. You know, he had just had a dramatic conversion experience. He was very zealous to share about Jesus with people. But as he did, he was kind of just doing it through the force of his own arguments and the strength of his own will. And he was causing really more harm than good. So he was, he was sent away for the good of the church. And then they enjoyed some peace. Uh, and then Saul's been kind of out there in Tarsus ever since for a number of years. And Barnabas hasn't forgotten about Saul, though. 
He's always been, he's always kind of had his eye out for Saul. Even when Saul first came to Jerusalem, everyone was scared of him. They were, you know, afraid he was going to kill him. But Barnabas said, oh, no, 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 this guy, this guy, his faith is real. Come on, welcome him in. Barnabas has had his eye on Saul, and he hasn't forgotten about him this whole time. And even more importantly than that, God hasn't forgotten about him. God hasn't forgotten about Saul this whole time. Uh, Paul, what Saul later becomes Paul, he, he alludes in some of his later writings that during this period, it was a real period of formation for him. That God taught him during this, these years where he wasn't so much in the public eye, God taught him great things about what grace really means. He was developed in his character, developed in his inner spiritual life, developed in his theology, his understanding of what grace is. So now he's ready to teach and he's ready to be fruitful and he's ready to bear good fruit in his ministry. The timing's perfect and Barnabas goes and gets him. And it's just another example of just the lack of ego in Barnabas that he takes Saul along, shares leadership with him. And eventually, really, Saul is going to be the one who takes center stage in the rest of the book of Acts. And Barnabas will sort of move out of the spotlight. In some ways, Saul goes on to become Paul. He's the one who, who really takes the gospel to new frontiers among the Gentiles, into Europe. And Barnabas isn't concerned about name recognition or who gets credit or who does what. He's really just concerned about promoting Christ. And in a real healthy, growing church, it's not about promoting ourselves, it's about promoting Christ above all, which means sharing leadership, bringing others in, calling them out, releasing their gifts, even stepping out of the spotlight when we have to, because we're about promoting Christ. And speaking of promoting Christ, that's clearly what the church at Antioch is doing, because it's here. Isn't it interesting? It's here. The disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. It was a label given to them from the outside. Jesus never used that word, you should become Christians. Well, the apostles didn't decide, oh, we're going to be the Christian church. It was, a, it was a label given to them by outsiders. They just called them these little, little Christ, little Christ people. We just look at them, they're just all about Christ, you know, these little Christ people. It was, it was a label, it was given to them, and it was kind of, you know, a, a slam, really, meant to be. Uh, but these believers thought, oh, that's cool. They took it as a badge of honor. You want to call us Christians? You want to identify us with Christ? Yeah, absolutely. You can think of no greater name. They took it as a badge of honor. It's kind of like the term Jesus freak. Uh, came out of the, the Jesus movement in the 70s. People started calling people Jesus freaks, and they thought, that's cool. We're about Jesus. I heard that term myself. I, I came to faith in college and I had a, a work-study job, and, and I was really outspoken about my, my newfound relationship with Jesus, and people started to call me Jesus Freak. And I, you know, first I was like, oh, man, you know, but then I, I realized, oh, that's, the shoe fits. And then around that time, there's this old Christian band, DC Talk, and they, they had this song, Jesus Freak, and it was like, what would people think if they hear that I'm a Jesus Freak? What would people possibly do? I don't really care if they label me a Jesus Freak. There ain't no denying the truth. It's kind of corny now, but at the time I thought, oh, that's awesome. You know, I would pump it up on my stereo before I went to work. I'm like, yeah, I'm a Jesus freak. I guess so. I'm all about Jesus now. So, you know, the shoe fit. People started to call them Christians, and that's what we've been called ever since. That's, uh, that's the name that stuck. And what better name? Identified with Christ. This church was all about promoting Christ and exhibiting him to the world. 
So this church in Antioch, it's a real thing now. It's grown. It's growing. It's becoming quite sizable in numbers. It's growing in faith. It's growing in influence and impact. It's raising up new leaders. And so this represents a serious shift in the church as a whole. We now have a church on the move. It's not centered in Jerusalem so much anymore. This church at Antioch is going to become quite a force for the kingdom of God. It's large in size. It's the place where Gentiles really work out what it means to know Jesus. Eventually, Antioch will be the church that sends Paul into his mission to new frontiers, to reach new places for Jesus, to reach new Gentile populations. Antioch is his sending church. So far in Acts, Jerusalem has been the place where everything's gone out from. People have been sent out from Jerusalem. But Antioch is going to be a major player, a sending church. It goes from being a mission field to a mission sending church. That's just the way God designed it. Just the way God likes it. He's always intended for the gospel to keep moving. Early on in our series, Pastor Tom shared with us how the church, first and foremost, is a movement more than it is an institution. It's meant to be on the move. And here it's moving. And that's exciting. The gospel is going forward into new places, reaching new people. And we'll see, though, in coming weeks, there are some in Jerusalem who just can't get on board with this. They just don't want to believe that Gentiles could have the same access to God that they have. And they end up becoming real obstacles to this movement. There are others in Jerusalem who seem able to at least go along with it, to at least acknowledge it's happening and perhaps bless it from a distance. Maybe some of those who sent Barnabas. You know, they said, well... I guess if God is granting life to the Gentiles, that's nice. That's great. That's, that's nice that that's happening out there with those people. And we'll just go about our business here. And then there are others in Jerusalem who really get on board, who are really excited about what God is doing. They recognize this is what Jesus said would happen. This was his promise, the gospel going out from Jerusalem to all the peoples of the world. They get excited, and they're willing to dive in and actively bless this new thing and actively partner with this new church in Antioch. They send Barnabas to go and to bless and encourage and teach this new church. And they send prophets In verse 27, prophets go down from Jerusalem to Antioch. They share their spiritual gifts. They share their knowledge and insight that God has given them. They go and share it with the church at Antioch. They go to bless them. And the cool thing is the church at Antioch blesses them right back. These prophets go with a message that there's a famine coming. Spread over the entire Roman world. And remember now, Antioch is the third largest city in the Roman Empire, so that, this affects them. But what's their first response? They think of their brothers and sisters in Judea, which is where Jerusalem is. They know those people will be hit especially hard by this famine. So their first response is to give themselves. Generously and sacrificially, they give a gift to their brothers and sisters in another place. This is a picture of true partnership and interdependence. Antioch doesn't desire independence, like, oh, hey, you know, we got our own thing now. We're cool. We don't need you anymore. We're doing just fine. 
Independence isn't the goal. Independence is not uh, a good outcome. It's interdependence. Receiving and giving to and from the Jerusalem church. Interdependence. It's a beautiful thing, and it blesses everyone involved. Now again, we'll see in future weeks, not everyone in Jerusalem is going to be on board with this and with what God is doing. But as God is moving, the center of the church is moving. The center of gravity in the church is beginning to shift. And you know, that's always been God's plan. And what starts here, this movement of the center of the church, is continuing now. It has never actually stopped. The church is first and foremost a movement and has always been on the move. So we have a little map to show you, I believe, on the slide. So this represents kind of the, the center of gravity of the church worldwide. Sort of if you took all the Christians in all the world and, and sort of the median central point, uh, where would it be? So it starts there in Jerusalem. And in our passage today, we see it start to move up and out towards Antioch. And that's never stopped, even until right now. The center of the Christian church has continued to be on the move. Can't see it all that clearly, but really up until the year 1000, it was in Turkey before it actually moved into Europe. And then it was in Europe for a number of years. But uh, in the last century, the center of Christianity has moved outside of Europe. Right now, it's in the country of Mali in northwestern Africa. And it continues to move. These are kind of projections if things go the way they are continuing to go. Interestingly enough, kind of moving away from the United States. But how do we respond to this? It's interesting. Let's look at it another way. Oh, you're taking a picture. I'll give you a second. Okay, so just another way to look at it. Uh, the shift, the church on the move. So this is just the last hundred years. Radical shift in the makeup of Christianity worldwide. In 1910, almost two-thirds of Christian people uh, resided in Europe. Look how much that's changed in just a hundred years till now. And most of that growth in the Americas, by the way, is really in South and Central America, uh, not where we are. Uh, a tremendous shift in what the Christian church looks like. And again, that's a good thing. That's exciting. That is what Jesus intended all along. Let me give you a few pictures of kind of what that looks like. So, uh, my wife and I serve with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. It's a campus ministry. And every three years, InterVarsity puts on a giant missions convention called Urbana, which began back in the 1940s. And at the time was kind of a, a convention that was, you know, the emphasis was on sending and calling North American students to kind of go to the far reaches of the world with the gospel and, and reach people for Jesus Christ. And, and there still is that emphasis there. But just this past year at Urbana 2012, let me just describe it to you a little bit. So our main Bible expositor uh, was from Kenya. We heard a testimony from a Brazilian woman who's a missionary to Italy. We sang a song in Hindi about how Jesus is the one true God. We heard a testimony from missionaries from China. And we heard a rousing sermon from the pastor from Alabama. It's an amazing picture of interdependence, partnership, and it was awesome. Places that were once considered mission fields, being missionaries, calling us out. Speaking of Brazil, did you know there are about 45 million evangelical Christians in Brazil right now? And they have sent about 5,000 Brazilian missionaries throughout the world. Some of them have even come 
to Massachusetts. It's true. I've met some. I'm not making this stuff up. Places that used to be mission fields are now missionaries. That's how God does it. We see it right here in Antioch. The Anglican Church. This is the Church of England, right? Right now, on any given Sunday, there's 15 times as many people worshiping in an Anglican church in Nigeria as there are in England. The face of the Anglican church is changing. It doesn't actually look very English anymore. Right now, there are Anglican churches in the U.S. under the authority of bishops in Africa. There are roughly 100 million Christians right now in China. That's more than all but 11 countries' total population in the world. That's how many Christians there are in China. And I've read recently about an exciting missions movement. It's sort of under the radar. It's called the Back to Jerusalem Movement. Some believers in China have realized and gotten a vision and call from God that the countries between China and Jerusalem are some of the, most, the least reached places for the gospel on earth and some of the places that are most hostile to the gospel on earth. And they feel like God has called them to be a major force in taking the gospel to these places. And there are tens of thousands of Chinese who've already begun, they're already going uh, to take their place on the, in the God's kingdom work in the world. And they're getting a lot of good training and Bible knowledge and crossing cultures and language and things like that. But you know what the most valuable training they've, they've received is, they would say? It's the decades and decades of persecution and suffering and imprisonments and torture that they've experienced under the hands of their own government in China. They've already faced death for the sake of the gospel, and so they're not afraid. They figure, well, what can people anywhere else do to us that we haven't already experienced? And they're ready to lay down their lives. You know, that's training you really can't get in a Western seminary. So there's a lot happening right now. There's a lot of change going on in the global church worldwide. How do we respond to that? Well, we could be like some people in Jerusalem church and we could resent what's happening. We could think poorly of it. We could refuse to believe that we're not the center of everything. But if we do, we could find ourselves like them actually resisting the work of the Holy Spirit in the world. We don't want to do that. We could be like some people in the Jerusalem church and acknowledge that oh, what God is doing, that, that's neat. That, those are neat stats, neat stories. That, that's, that's nice. You know, it's, it's good, good for them. God's working in other places. That, that's good. Good for them. And then we go about just uh, our, own, our own business here. Or we can be like others in the Jerusalem church and be genuinely excited about what God is doing in the world We can dive in and we can play our part. We can bless others and we can be blessed in return. We can make it a point to pray for the persecuted church around the world, knowing that they're every bit as much our brothers and sisters as the person sitting next to you this morning. We can give sacrificially of our resources and our material blessings for the sake of what God is doing other places. You know that pastor from Alabama who spoke to us at Urbana, he, he's told a great story. He leads a really thriving, successful megachurch in Alabama, and they, have this, they had this rainy day fund, about a half a million dollars that they'd sort of stored up, you know, just in case. You never know what might happen. But this pastor, he traveled around and met Christian leaders from different parts of the world, and he realized, you know what? 
It's actually a rainy day in the church right now for a lot of people. And he challenged his congregation to invest their rainy day fund, all half a million dollars of it, uh, in a worldwide, in a relief effort overseas. And they did. Because they're part of a larger church than the, the one in Alabama. We can just simply be encouraged by what's happening in other parts of the world. That's a huge blessing to me. You know, whenever I start to get down and a little discouraged about uh, the state of the church in the U.S. and it's a little bit in decline and maybe not thriving everywhere, I just stop and think about what God is doing everywhere on the world stage. You know, I mean, Christianity is exploding worldwide. If I keep that in perspective, it's really hard to just ha- feel sorry for myself here. We can be encouraged. We can receive the gifts of the worldwide church. You know, if we want to see real renewal and, and revival and spiritual growth here in our own culture, I mean, a lot of the best examples that we have to look to, they're not right next door. There are other places. Will we be willing to learn from them? You know, the Anglican church and a lot of its Western leadership has, has sort of turned away from a real biblical faith. And a lot of our brothers and sisters in Africa really believe the Bible. They take it at face value. And, and some of the Western leaders in Anglicanism, you know, despite their veneer of tolerance and, and whatever, they really kind of look down their noses at, at these people because they would dare to take the Bible, you know, literally. Um, and there was one conference a few years ago where an African bishop stood up and just finally said, well, if you don't believe the scriptures, why did you bring it to us in the first place? And there are Anglican churches in the U.S. who are turning to Africa for their leadership right now. There are Anglican churches in California under the Bishop of Uganda. And there's a, some friends of mine go to an Anglican church in Connecticut that's under the Bishop of Rwanda. Because they want to follow a biblical faith, stick to an orthodox faith. And that's the leadership they need right now. And those churches are growing and thriving, whereas a lot of the rest of them are in decline. You've got to be willing to receive And humble like Barnabas. We've got to be humble like Barnabas. It's not about us. Even in our own city, there are people who've traveled from far and wide. I met a pastor recently at a prayer gathering who is from Ghana, leads a church among the large Ghanaian population in Worcester. And he's led his church in all-night prayer gatherings for our city. Their churches stayed up all throughout the night, crying out to God for spiritual renewal and revival in Worcester. You know, that might be some of the most significant kingdom work that's happening in our city right now. Are we willing to partner with them? They're our partners in the gospel. Now let's bring it even closer to home. A shifting church. You know, just within this church, things have shifted a lot in just the three years that we've existed. In just the two plus years that Liz and I have come come here, we've noticed the makeup of the journey shift quite a bit in just that short time. Here's a few ways. So, We've shifted more towards Worcester. We actually initially met in Shrewsbury. Now we meet in Worcester. Uh, But if you had a map of Worcester County and and kind of put that center dot where we all live, uh, it would have been kind of outside of Worcester at the beginning, but it's moved closer and closer into the city. Don't know exactly where it would be now, but we're a much more Worcester-centric church made up of people who live in the city. Uh, And I'm one of those. I'm blessed by that. I was blessed when we moved the men's prayer breakfast from way out in Westboro to Worcester, the city that we're trying to reach. But I'm also super, super grateful, and I praise God for those of you who are from the suburbs with the vision to plant this church, who've invested so much in this city, and who continue to do that. 
We all need each other, city people, suburb people alike. Interdependence, remember, is the goal. True partnership, interdependence, city and suburb. Our church has shifted and it's gotten somewhat more ethnically and culturally diverse. A little bit. And I wonder what it would look like if diversity wasn't represented just in, you know, attendance and the faces who are here on a Sunday morning. But what if it was represented more in our leadership, in our ways of worshiping and praying and interacting with God so that we have a more full and complete picture of who our awesome God is, where we all bring our cultural uh, gifts and, and talents to the table. Interdependence. We all need each other. Our church has also gotten younger. The median age of our average attendee has, has gotten lower since this church began. And that's an exciting thing. It's very cool. I want to commend some of the more, shall we say, seasoned saints in this church who are genuinely excited about that and who are really amazing at welcoming and being a blessing to younger people here. You know, that's not a given. There are plenty of churches where a previous generation doesn't, isn't all that excited about welcoming a younger generation with their different ways of talking and dressing and, and you know, the Bible on their iPhone. You know, they don't have real Bibles anymore. Uh, but this church is an awesome intergenerational church. And it's great. And it's pretty obvious that any church that refuses to invest in the younger generation is headed for extinction. That's kind of common sense. But it's also true that any church that's young that refuses to receive the gifts of the older people among them is also headed for a certain destruction and disaster. So just remember that, young adults. The goal is not independence. It's interdependence. You need the wisdom and the gifts of those who are older than you in this church. We're an intergenerational church. Interdependence is the vision. Finally, there may be one more shift that I hope happens really soon among us. And if we're really true to our vision and calling as a church, it's going to happen. And that would be increasing numbers of people among us who are just brand new to faith. That may be some of you here today. I'm so, so glad that you're here. And I hope that there are so many more will join us in the months and the years to come. That'd be a big shift for some of us now. And that may have been actually the hardest thing for some of the believers in Jerusalem to get past. They who had known God for a really long time, who'd done all the religious stuff, who had the track record and had put in the time, all of a sudden welcoming these Gentile people, people who were brand new, hadn't had any of the history they had, hadn't done any of the religious stuff, but getting a clean start and welcome because of the grace of Jesus. That's how we've got to be. Some of the most important leaders going forward in this church may be people who don't even know Jesus right now. Will we be willing to welcome them, walk with them along their spiritual journey, help them to know Jesus and call out their leadership? Because we could all have an awful lot to learn from one another. Old believers and new believers alike. So that's just a snippet of how things are even shifting right around here. And things are shifting all around the world. And that's how God designed it. We see it right here in Antioch, the beginning of this movement that continues to this day. And however God moves among us, journey, may we move with him. Let me pray for us.
Father, we thank you that you broke out in this way in Antioch, that you overcame such serious barriers between people to start this new church that eventually started other new churches. And all of us here are kind of a byproduct of that, Lord. We're so grateful for the ways your grace just continues to extend further and further. And we pray, Lord, that this church would play its part in what you're doing in the world. Would you teach us what that is? Teach us our gifts and teach us the gifts of others. Lead us into a deeper independence. Help us to be a church where city, city dwellers and suburbanites partner together. We partner together across ethnic and cultural diversity. We partner together intergenerationally and where we see people who've known Jesus for a long time walk side by side with people who are just getting to know him. It's a big vision, Lord, but you're a big God and we trust you. In Jesus' name, amen.